All right, well, good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 13? Last week we began chapter 13. Let me just review quickly to kind of bring those of you who are new up to speed. Matthew 13 marks a dramatic change in the teaching ministry or the teaching style of Jesus. Up until this point, his teaching has been fairly straightforward and simple. But starting in chapter 13, he begins to teach in parables. Now, as we said last time, the Greek word for parable is a word that literally means to cast or to lay alongside. And it signifies an earthly story that's kind of set alongside a a heavenly or a spiritual truth to illustrate and to help illuminate it. Now, parables differ from fables in that a fable is not a real situation. Uh, The classic example of this would be any of Aesop's fables or stories in which animals talk. Well, in those stories, of course, animals are really simply people in disguise. Parables are different from allegories, since in an allegory, pretty much every detail has some kind of meaning. The best-known allegory of all times is, of course, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Of course, C.S. Lewis also wrote his Chronicles of Narnia series, which were also allegories. Now, Here's what I want to underscore so you don't miss this. The parables of Jesus are not allegories, they're not fables. They're real-life stories that illustrate spiritual truth. However, in a parable, not everything has a meaning. Christians get into trouble and come up with false interpretations that lead to false conclusions and sometimes false doctrines by trying to find meaning in every little detail of a parable. Don't press a parable to the nth degree, it will break down and you'll start coming away with some bizarre applications. Jesus, when he gave these parables, said, the kingdom of heaven is what? Like. He didn't say exactly like. He said like. Meaning that, you know what? This is a simple story laid alongside a spiritual truth to help you understand the truth more clearly. It's not to be pushed to the nth degree where you begin to read all kinds of things into these parables because you're going to come away with some false doctrine, as we're going to see uh, in a moment. So a parable is just simply a real-life story uh, that's designed to teach one or two basic truths. Now, even though parables can be used to reveal truth, listen to me, they can also be used to hide truth. As Jesus now uses them in Matthew 13 against the scribes and the Pharisees and really anyone else, who had constantly hardened their hearts to his message, the message of the gospel. You know, there comes a point in the life of every unbeliever, a person who continually rejects God's truth, where God eventually turns out the light. God's truth is likened to light in the scriptures. And if a person loves darkness rather than light because they want to live wickedly, and they reject continually the light of God's truth, at one point God says, that's fine, he just turns out the lights. And when that happens, their eyes are blinded so that they can't understand his truth any longer. At that point, the opportunity for salvation has been, listen, officially withdrawn. These folks have then passed the spiritual point of no return and have committed what Jesus referred to as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. In other words, the day of grace has ended and their eternal destruction is sealed. Now, Matthew 13, as we've already said, contains seven parables all having one basic theme the kingdom of god which is why they're called kingdom parables if you didn't know that already 
Um, but these seven parables are divided as follows. And there's different ways of dividing these. Here's the one I came up with that I'm most comfortable with. All right. The theme of the first parable, the sower, is the offer or actually the invitation of the kingdom. How the gospel is sown throughout the world and into all different kinds of hearts as God is inviting all men and women to be saved. The next three parables, the tares and wheat, mustard seed, and leaven, all deal with Satan's attempt to thwart the kingdom by infiltrating it and corrupting it from within. For many, many centuries, Satan's, one of his big mottos is, if you can't beat him, what? Join him. Jesus said, against my church, the gates of hell will not prevail. So Satan knows that, so he will often, often infiltrate through false teachers, false doctrine, into a church or into a move of God to try to corrupt it from the inside. The fifth and sixth parables deal with the costliness of the kingdom. How it cost us really nothing, but cost the Lord Jesus Christ everything to make the kingdom a reality. And finally, the last parable deals with the consummation of the kingdom. As the true are separated from the false in preparation for the kingdom age, the millennial kingdom, to officially now begin when Jesus Christ comes back. And so to summarize, the division of these parables is as follows. The universal invitation of the kingdom, the first parable. The satanic infiltration of the kingdom, second, third, and fourth parables. The priceless consideration of the kingdom, fifth and sixth parables. And the ultimate consummation of the kingdom, the seventh and final parable. Now, last week in our study, we looked at the first parable, the parable of the sower. So if you weren't here, get the CD. We're not going to spend a whole week on each parable. But the first two especially we will. When you start getting uh, on into the parables he gave, they get sh- some of them are pretty short. And so we'll take two, maybe even three in one week. But there's a couple that we really want to focus on. Last week the parable of the sower was one of those. Uh, the parable of the wheat and the tares coming up next week uh, is another one. But so just you understand, last week we looked at the parable of the sower. But as we said, when Jesus began to teach the multitudes in parables, It was such a dramatic departure from the clear, simple, straightforward style that he had been teaching the people with that everyone was used to, especially his disciples. When he began to shift now and began to change his style of teaching, it was so radical that his disciples took him on the side and said, Lord, why do you teach the people in parables? And he said in verse 11, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Now, I want you to stay with me because this whole idea of the kingdom and especially the mystery of the kingdom is confusing to a lot of people. Jesus began to talk about the mysteries of the kingdom. Now, listen to me. He never started talking about the mysteries of the kingdom until he was rejected by the leaders of Israel. And that started when back in chapter 12, verse 22, when he healed a guy And the the scribes and Pharisees said, he doesn't do it by the power of God. He does it by the power of the devil. So when the nation, the leadership I'm thinking of, began to reject him as king, the offer of the kingdom was moved from outward and political, listen, to inward and spiritual. This is sometimes called the mystery form of the kingdom. You'll hear that phrase and you might wonder, what is that? The mystery form of the kingdom. Let me try to explain it. When Jesus came the first time, 
if the nation would have received him, certainly some did, his disciples did, of course. I'm talking about the leadership, though. The Sanhedrin, scribes and Pharisees, etc. If the nation had received him at his first coming, he would have brought at that time the outward, visible political kingdom to the earth where he would have reigned from Jerusalem over the whole earth and the Jewish people would have been his prime ministers. Now, God knew they weren't going to do that. They weren't going to accept him at his first coming as king. I mean, they wanted the kingdom. They had looked forward to the king's coming. But here he comes, and he's talking about denying themselves, taking up their cross, loving their enemies, uh, realizing that it's not by your works of righteousness, your, your religious deeds, but by faith in me alone. And Gentiles can be included as well. Well, they didn't like that. Jewish leadership did not like that message. So they rejected the king because they didn't like what he had to say. And because they rejected him, that meant the kingdom wasn't going to be coming now outwardly and politically. But when they rejected him, Jesus began to turn to individuals, both Jews and Gentiles, and offering them to be a member of the kingdom. And he said this basically, if you want to be a member of my kingdom, then you've got to receive me into your heart to reign over your life as your king. Once you do that, the kingdom is going to come within you. It's called the mystery form of the kingdom. In other words, the joy, the peace, all the beautiful things the kingdom would have brought outwardly and will still bring when Jesus comes the second time and establishes that visible political worldwide kingdom. And there's no more wars. There's no more injustice. There'll be peace and love and joy throughout the face of the whole earth. Now that's moved to the second coming. But now after his first coming, anyone who would receive the king into their heart to reign over their lives, the kingdom would come inside. Didn't Jesus say that? The kingdom of God is within you. We are members of the kingdom, guys. The kingdom is within us. We're waiting for the visible outward kingdom to come, but we already have the king in our hearts. We already have Jesus reigning over our lives. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? So he starts talking about these mysteries. And the Greek word for mystery is a word that means something that was hidden from the Old Testament saints, but is now being revealed. Why was this thing hidden from the Old Testament saints? Because it has to do with the church. And the church was a mystery hidden from the Old Testament. And so the mysteries of the kingdom that Jesus Christ is going to be revealing now, he is going to be revealing to those who have an open heart to the truth of God. These mysteries won't be mysteries anymore to them. But they will still be mysteries to those with hard hearts. Now, I'm just laying some more groundwork because this is, I want to lay a good foundation for this chapter. Very important chapter. In fact, the whole Gospel of Matthew is built around three discourses. The um, Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7. The Seven Kingdom Parables, Matthew 13. And then the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 5. So this is one of the main discourses in the Gospel of Matthew. And if you don't get a good foundation, you're not going to understand it. And it's going to be, you're going to miss out. Matthew is the only one that uses the term kingdom of heaven. The other gospel writers use the term kingdom of God. There's slight, different, slight variations. They, they mean essentially the same thing. But Matthew uses that term kingdom of heaven 32 times in his gospel. And he, it was used by Jesus, actually. He's recording what Jesus said. Uh, it was used by Jesus to speak of the kingdom of God on the earth, made up of Jewish and Gentile believers, otherwise known as the church. Now listen, if you don't understand this, you're going to miss half of this truth, all right? Yes, the kingdom of heaven was going to include 
Jewish and Gentile believers who would be Christians and then members of the church. But he uses that in a broad way, that term, the uh, kingdom of heaven. It's used in a broad sense to denote everybody in the world who calls themselves a Christian and goes to church, we'll say. So included in that statement, you have all the mainline denominations. You have all the Christian cults. Everybody who thinks they're a Christian, maybe even goes to church regularly. You have Roman Catholics in view. You have Presbyterians and Baptists and Methodists and all these people. These are all professing Christians. Some of them are genuine Christians. Many of them are not Christians. So Jesus is addressing all of these people. And he's telling us, and he's trying to drive this point home throughout all of these kingdom parables, that the kingdom of heaven, or what is called the church on the earth, is not made up only of true believers. It's got a lot of tares mixed in. It's got a lot of false brethren, some who think they're Christians, others who know they're not Christians, but have infiltrated into the ranks of Christianity to do some dirty work from the devil. Be aware of that, is the idea. Jesus wants us to understand that. Because if you don't get that in your mind, you're going to come away with some pretty strange interpretations. You're going to have, as you read the parable of the dragnet, how that, you know, God gathers out of the four corners of the earth his people and separates them. The good he lets into the kingdom, the bad he tosses away, and they go to hell. You think, oh, well, you hear that, Christians? You've got to be good, you know? You've you got you to go to church all the time, read your Bible all the time. You can't have your hair too long, you guys. Girls can't have your skirts too short. All these laws that dump, churches dump on people because if you don't keep these laws and these rules, you're not a good Christian and you're going to be cast into hell. But where does grace come in? Where does grace come in? He's not talking about real Christians. He's talking about in the church, all the phony Christians will be separated from the true ones at one point. Listen, as Paul was telling Timothy, a young pastor, in Second Timothy, Paul's farewell address, He was trying to encourage Timothy because a lot of things were going on in Ephesus where Timothy was pastoring. And part of the thing that was going on was there were false teachers that had come in. So did false doctrine. were leading people astray. Timothy was discouraged. Paul says, look, don't be discouraged. Timothy, know this. The firm foundation of the Lord stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who belong to him. God knows those who are his. say, well, yeah, but I need to know that, don't I? That's true. That's why these kingdom parables are so important. Because they challenge us to evaluate. Are we really true Christians? Or are we playing games with God? Are we only calling ourselves Christians? Look, there's a lot of folks who go to church who call themselves Christians but really aren't. Look, I'm going to tell you from the statistics that I have seen, there's probably of all the people we'll say in America who call themselves Christians, 12 to 15% of them are actually Christians. Do you know how many think they're Christians? Gallup did a survey years ago. 90%, 89-90% of the people in America claim to be Christians. Do you think that 90% of your neighbors, your co-workers, are Christians? No. There's a lot of deceived people out there. And God's going to sort it all out one day. But we want you to be on the good side, right? We want you to come over and be on the right team as we're going to see. Now, for the rest of our time this morning, I want to focus our attention on verses 10 to 17, which is not a parable, but forms the foundation for why Jesus began to teach in parables, which we've already alluded to. When Jesus' disciples asked him why he taught in parables, he responded in verse 11 by saying, because it has been given to you 
to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. See the difference there? You and them. The you, of course, refers to Jesus' true disciples, all those who were open heart that were that had received him as Lord and Savior, or were following him because they were open to what he was saying and would eventually give their hearts to Christ. Jesus was speaking to them now through parables. They would understand. The Spirit would give them the ability to understand. But to the rest, like the scribes and Pharisees who had so hardened their hearts to the gospel, God was now going to be hiding from them the truth. They refused to see, as I said earlier, so now they could not see. And let's read verses 12 and 13. Jesus said, For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And let me paraphrase what the Lord is saying here. He is saying, essentially, if anyone receives the truth of God and desires to obey it, to that person, the Holy Spirit will give more truth and the ability to understand it. And they will have an abundance of God's truth in their hearts, implying they're going to be saved. But whoever despises God's truth and does not receive it, the Holy Spirit will take from their heart what little truth they were given. Think of the birds eating the seed in the parable of the sower. Same idea. Therefore, Jesus said, I will now speak in parables to those who are hard-hearted because they see the miracles but refuse to comprehend. They hear my words but refuse to understand. And then the Lord goes on to say that all of this was prophesied by Isaiah the prophet. And he said in verses 14 to 15, In them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear, and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. Now, that comes right out of Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. And let me give you the background because it's very important. And it dovetails with what we're talking about in Matthew 13. God sent Isaiah the prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah to warn them that God's judgment was about to fall on the nation for their wickedness. It was a time not unlike our own. The nation of Judah was at a real low point, both spiritually and morally. In fact, as you read the book of Isaiah... Uh, you'll see how Isaiah pronounced a series of judgments upon the people for their drunkenness, their debauchery, their idolatry, the dishonesty in their dealings with each other, their indifference towards the poor, their injustice, uh, their hypocrisy. Hypocrisy because in the midst of all of this, they were still going to temple, they were still keeping the Sabbath and the feast days and, the, and their other religious duties giving the people a false sense of being right with God because they did all these religious things. Say, as long as I go to church and sing a few songs to God, throw a couple bucks in the collection bank, hey, God doesn't care how I treat people in my business if I lie. He knows I've got to do certain things to get ahead and to make the sale. And Really? We'll talk to him about that one day. All right? We'll see how he feels about it. But that's what's going on in Israel today. You can read Isaiah chapter 1. 
where God says, you know, I'm, t- I'm sick and tired of hearing your songs. I'm sick and tired of your sacrifice. I can't stand the sacrifices anymore. I'm, I'm tired of your feast days, your new moons and your Sabbath days, all your religious observances. Your hearts are not for me. Your hearts are far from me. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. As God tries to, to reason with them to get right with him. Of course, they wouldn't listen. This false sense of being right. They thought they were right with him already. And this false sense of being right with God was bolstered by the fact that the nation at that time, listen, was very strong militarily and prosperous financially, which the people mistook for God's blessings and approval upon the nation. Who was on the throne at this time? It was King Uzziah. King Uzziah. King Uzziah was a decent king. He was also a brilliant man. He was an inventor, a military inventor in a a sense, of weaponry. He invented several weapons that gave Israel an advantage over their enemies, so much so that at this time Israel was the military power in the region. All the enemies knew they couldn't come up against Israel because these weapons that Uzziah had developed gave them the upper hand, so their enemies backed off, which gave Israel a wonderful time of peace, coupled with the fact that financially they were prospering big time. And so here comes Isaiah the prophet, sent by God to tell the nation, you better get your lives right with God, you better repent of your sins, or else God will bring judgment upon you. And the people are no doubt thinking, who is this Isaiah? This guy's out to lunch. I mean, God's hand is upon us. We're being blessed militarily. We're prospering financially. Who is this guy? And they mocked him, ridiculed him. And fi- in fact, they finally stuck him in a hollow out log and sought him in two. Because in their minds, what is he talking about? We're obviously being blessed by God. We got, we're strong militarily, financially, we're prospering. Hey, long live King Uzziah. This guy on the throne, man, he's the best king we've had in years. He has prospered this nation. Long live King Uzziah. And as Isaiah is talking to the people about their need to repent, and the people are saying, we don't need to repent. We're right with God. God's blessing us. We've got a great king on the throne. King Uzziah is wonderful. Long live Uzziah. Right about that time, guess what? King Uzziah dies. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. And suddenly the nation was plunged into some of the darkest days in its history. It's amazing how things can change quickly, isn't it? From prosperity to poverty. And yet even though the people were on the verge of captivity at the hands of the Babylonians as a part of God's judgment, yet they still refused to repent and get their lives and their nation right with God. And so God sent Isaiah to them. And let me read it to you right out of Isaiah now, chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, where God says, Go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. In other words, guys, what God is saying, what he told Isaiah was, Isaiah, you go ahead and you still keep preaching. There's probably a few hearts out there that are still, God knows who they were, but I'm saying when God told Isaiah to keep preaching, it was because there was probably a few hearts that were still open. But for the most part, the nation had rejected God's message and God's messenger. And so God said, Isaiah, you keep preaching. But know this, those people who have hardened their hearts, they're not going to understand anymore. They're not going to get it, all right? In fact, later on in Isaiah, God said, 
I sent prophet after prophet speaking to them clearly in their own language, and they wouldn't listen to my words. Now they're going to hear loud and clear through the tongue of a nation whose language they don't understand. What does that mean? When the Babylonians come speaking Chaldean, they're going to know my judgment has come. They rejected the clear teachings of Isaiah and the other prophets because their hearts were hard. So God says, you no longer are going to understand now. This is exactly what was going on by Jesus now speaking in parables. The open-hearted would understand, but the hard-hearted they would not perceive. The clear teachings he had given in the Sermon on the Mount, they rejected. And so now he goes cryptic. He begins to speak in parables. And by contrast, though, Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 13, verses 16 and 17, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus is saying, you disciples of mine are tremendously privileged because they were seeing what many of God's prophets and righteous people in the Old Testament had longed to see but never did. What is that? The coming of Messiah. To see with their own eyes his awesome miracles as he made the lame walk, the blind see, the dumb praise God. To hear his awe-inspiring words. Words like no man ever spoke. Remember when the chief priest dispatched the temple guard to arrest Jesus in the temple? You know, as they were going to push for his crucifixion? And the guards came back and Jesus wasn't with them. And they said, where is he? Oh, nobody ever spoke like this man spoke. They got caught up. They went to get him, got caught up in his teachings, forgot to arrest him. That's a pretty good preacher. See, his disciples heard the same truth as the national leaders. But their response was entirely different. The disciples saw and heard and believed, whereas the religious leaders saw and heard and rejected. And listen to me. Because the leaders of Israel in Jesus' day had basically turned away from the light God had given them, well, God gave them no additional light or truth. In fact, what he does is now he begins to harden their hearts all the more, guaranteeing that the nation was then going to be judged which happened in 70 AD the people rejected God's truth and therefore they reaped God's judgment you know folks I see many parallels between Israel back then and America today if you think about it I believe personally that God established America like he did Israel he took Israel he took them from a foreign land and established them in a land flowing with milk and honey just like he took us from a foreign land, established us in a land that was rich and prosperous, uh, a land that had many rivers and natural resources and so on and so forth. And like Israel, God started us off in obscurity and raised us to a place of absolute supremacy above all the other nations of the world. We once were thankful. As we're coming up into Thanksgiving, we don't even acknowledge to our kids in schools anymore it's about thanking God. It's about thanking the Indians. We've Remove God from so many areas of our lives. But we used to humbly thank our God for his great blessings. Read our founding, read George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, as they talked about Thanksgiving. Of course, George Washington was the one who founded it. But it was all about thanking God for his wonderful providence and, and, and benefits and things like that. 
But we have come to a point like Israel where now we're taking credit. It's our capitalism. It's our strong military might that's made us the greatest nation on the face of the earth. And what is God doing? He's trying to get our attention. Because when a nation turns their back on God, God will eventually turn his back on the nation. He doesn't want to do that, though. He's a merciful God. So what he's, he's trying to get our attention, like he tried to get Israel's attention. He, brought, he tried to get their attention through various calamities, through various incursions of the enemy uh, upon them, trying to get them to wake up. And I see God in his mercy trying to warn us by removing his hand of blessing and protection from us as Americans, trying to get our attention. Of course, most of you know that after 9-11 which I think was one of God's big wake-up calls. Two of our nation's leaders, Tom Daschle and John Edwards, quoted from Isaiah 9:10. Daschle on the floor of the Congress. I think it was uh, Edwards at some kind of an official function. They both quoted, after the Twin Towers had been knocked down, they both quoted, I love it when unspiritual men try to act spiritual. Now, I don't really love it, But if it wasn't so tragic, it'd be funny. Both of these men, trying to be spiritual, quoted from Isaiah 9, verse 10. The bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with hewn stone. The sycamores are cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. In other words, they can knock down these buildings. We'll build them even bigger and stronger. You know? We'll rebuild, you know? And not realizing that the people in the northern kingdom They were so bad that they eventually went into captivity to the Assyrians around 722 B.C. because they wouldn't listen to God's prophets either. They kept going their own way. So God finally brings the Assyrians in and levels the place. And this was their defiant speech, basically saying, we don't care what God does. He he knocked down buildings with stones. We'll build them back with hewn stones. He knocked down some, some sycamore trees. We'll plant cedar trees. We'll show you God. It was an act of rebellion and defiance in the face of Almighty God. And here is our leaders quoting a passage of judgment, you know, a a passage of defiance, I should say, in the aftermath of God's judgment, not even realizing what they're saying. Hey, look, there's a lot of people who would disagree with me, and that's okay. But this is how I feel. We are seeing God using storms like Hurricane Sandy, and other things to get our attention. We see him using the looming financial catastrophe that's coming. $16 trillion in debt. Come on. 40 cents of every dollar we spend, we borrow from China. How long can we go? You try that in your, your home finances. For every dollar you make, you spend a buck forty. See how long how far that gets you. Of course, you can't print money in your basement. He's using a lot of things to try to get this nation's attention. How's he doing? Is he getting people's attention? Are people starting to repent? As you look around, do you see people becoming more tender-hearted? Are they falling on their knees and repenting because of one natural disaster after another or the economic crisis that's, that's looming? Do you see them falling on their faces and repenting before God? No. Instead, this nation elected a president who is the most pro-abortion, pro-homosexual, and pro-big government president we've ever had, proving that many people in this country, a majority now, have substituted government for God. They're looking to the government now to be what God used to be in our lives, our provider, our protector. 
They're looking to government to give them all they want, everything they need. Remember what Thomas Jefferson said, though. A government big enough to give you everything you want is big enough to take away everything you have. I'm wondering what's next. What does God have to do to finally get our attention? You know, after 9-11, I saw our leaders gathering on the steps of the Capitol, all singing, you know, together, you know, I don't know, Kumbaya or God Bless America, right? You don't think God sees through that? You know, if the Lord would have spoken from heaven, you know what he would have said? Save it. Get your hearts right. I see your hearts. You can sing God Bless America. I am not going to bless America until Americans get their hearts right with me. I mean, I'm wondering what it's going to take, though. Really. I mean, if God speaks in our pleasures and shouts in our pain, good heavens, what's coming? If we become so dull of hearing that he has to shout, what is he going to do next? I mean, does it have to be some kind of a plague? Like another black plague that swept across Europe? Is it going to be some major earthquake that's going to wipe out a good part of the West Coast? Is it going to be the total financial collapse of our nation's economy? Or maybe a nuclear attack within our borders? I don't know, but it seems that, you know, as many pastors and leaders and, and just average Christians who are trying to tell their families and their co-workers and their neighbors that God's judgment is looming upon this nation and we had all better repent, you know what? They're not listening. They're mocking, they're ridiculing, aren't they? They think we're nuts. Because the way they look at it, we're still the most prosperous and military powerful nation in the earth. Hey, we're right with God. God loves us. We're the good guys. We wear the white hats, really. Now, Israel was the good guys for a while. They were God's chosen people. But God didn't treat them any differently than he would any other pagan nation. In fact, he treated them with more harshness because they knew better. They knew better. I don't know what it's going to take. I know one thing. I don't think God wants us to stop preaching. I'm wondering if God is saying to us today, much like he was saying to Israel back then, keep on preaching, but understand that the people see these calamities, talking about Americans now, but don't comprehend their significance. The people of America hear the word of God preached to them, but they don't understand the reality of the judgments that are coming. Their hearts are hard, their hearing is dull, their eyes are blind. But he goes on to say, blessed are your eyes and your ears, because your eyes see and your ears hear. I'm so thankful that God has opened our eyes. Sounds a little haughty, doesn't it? Oh, you Christians, you think God has opened your eyes. Hey, you know what? Take it up with him. This is what he has said. I will open the eyes of the blind if they receive my word into their hearts. And I'm so thankful. Now listen, I'm not abandoning our country. I'm praying for mercy. We deserve judgment, guys. We deserve judgment. Like Billy Graham said. If God doesn't judge America, he owes an apology to Sodom and Gomorrah. We deserve judgment. But God said, I delight in showing mercy. But I know one thing. If God's going to show mercy to America, his people who are called by his name need to humble themselves, pray, seek his face, turn from our wicked ways. For then he said, I will hear your prayers from heaven, I will forgive your sins, and I will heal your land. So may God 
be merciful to our nation. As you're gathered around your table this Thanksgiving, remember to thank the Lord for giving us the best nation on the face of the earth. But if we think it can never be taken from us, if we take his blessings for granted and think he'll never remove them, you're doing the same thing Israel did. God will never judge us. We're his people. He loves us. God's a holy and righteous God. He does love us, but he has to punish sin. And the only hope is revival. Pray for revival. And pray that it starts in your own heart. May God give us grace. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your incredible mercy and grace. We know, Lord, that we are not worthy of the least of your blessings, but, Lord, you lavish upon us so many wonderful blessings each day. And, Father, we, we fear, we tremble for our nation. For we know that even though you have raised us up, you can certainly bring us down. And if we don't get our hearts right with you, if we don't stop killing children in their mother's wombs, if we don't stop justifying and legitimizing sins like homosexuality, give us grace to love the homosexuals, but to not embrace their lifestyle, it is an abomination. You say so in your word, and if we really love them, we'll tell them the truth, because we don't want to see them go to hell. So, Lord, give us grace to speak your truth in love, but to speak it faithfully and constantly. Father, be merciful to this nation. Please work in the hearts of our leaders that they never turn their back on Israel. For I fear if we do finally do that, that will be the final straw. So, Lord, give us grace. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.